Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Chris Bond, OAM. Chris is a wheelchair rugby player for Team Australia and he is a three-time Paralympian, having won two gold medals with the team in 2012 and 2016. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Such a dynamic player. It's always really enjoyable to watch you play. So I'm I'm intrigued to get to know you a little bit more. We've had your lovely wife on previously, Bridie Keane. So now we get to the other half of the equation. So I'm I'm really (laughs) interested to see how that goes. So Chris, can you tell us a little bit about your background, your impairment and how you got into playing wheelchair rugby? Yeah. So I was always athletic as a kid. I grew up in Canberra and, you know, I was on every sports team and I was I did quite well at sport as an able-bodied young person. Mm-hmm. Um, before school, I would go to school early to, early to play indoor soccer and then at lunchtime I would play cricket and then, you know, on the weekends I played rugby league. So just really that was my childhood was playing sport and I loved mm-hmm. it. And then like most young people, they finish school, they get into girls and partying and drinking <laughs> and all that kind of stuff when you hit 18 and sport kind of went to the wayside a little bit. I had represented the ACT I was in the ACT Academy of Sport Talent Identification Program uh, as right. a 15-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, they came to the school, did some tests, and I was did well enough to, to be involved in that, and that was with cycling. So I, I had a bit mm. of a taste of high-performance sport as a, as a young person. But then, as I said, kind of life and, and friends kind of got it in the way. And then, uh, yeah, unfortunately, when I was 19 years of age, I got pretty sick very quickly. Mm. I didn't know, but I had a, a rare leukemia a blood cancer and at Mm. the same time i had a a bacterial infection so look either of those on their own probably come out okay but Mm. together and without any immunity fighting a pretty bad infection Mm. long story short uh almost died and then a long journey recovery and on the other side yeah unfortunately i i became a quadruple amputee so i lost both my legs below the knee my Mm. left uh, hand at the wrist and four mm. of my right fingers mm. before they even started chemotherapy so yeah it was a it was a long journey but that's kind of yeah in a, in, a, in, the, in the short version that's kind of how I acquired my disability and then the next step after that was all right well how do I get back into sport because that's something I always knew I loved and I had a bit more free time then uh, in my recovery and I started swimming because the people at the time thought that was the only sport I'd be able to do with my disability. Mm. And then just luckily, I was at the gym one, one day and the, the head coach of the Australian team came in of wheelchair rugby and he said, uh, oh, good day, I'm Brad and, you know, I think you'd be eligible to play rugby. I was like, mm. what is that? That sounds awesome. <laughs> um, sick of swimming up this black line every five o'clock every morning in Canberra <laughs> winter and uh, I, I played rugby league. I love the team camaraderie aspect and the contact. I was like, yeah. And then he invited me to a camp and – the first time I got to see these these chairs hit each other and, you know, full pelt, I was like, yeah, I, I need to have a go at this. And, yeah, <laughs> rest is history. Yeah. Wow. And what an introduction. I mean, to, to just a random chance meeting with the national coach and I'm, I'm sure he would have taken one quick look at you and gone, oh, here we go. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I was the missing link in the team at the time. Mm. They had Riley Bat, who's, you know, world-renowned, probably best player, and they're just missing that extra high pointer to sort of yep. run with Riley. And his eyes lit up and my eyes lit up and 
yeah, on a fast <laughs> track and made the Australian team and just been going ever since. Yeah, yeah. And that was actually only, what, a year or two before the 2012 Games, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the end of 2010. Mm. So I joined my first, I guess, official tournament or, or, or tour with a team was in 2011 mm-hmm. and then just had to fast track myself as quick as possible to make that team for 2012 and luckily did. Yeah, but you would have had some skills that kind of carried over from your sporting childhood. Did you find that there were some skills that carried over really quickly? Definitely, yeah. Like being a, a ball sport and a team sport, I could read the plays. It's mm. just about training my body to be able to get in the right position because it's a different fitness and a different skill set to push a chair. But the, the sporting brain was definitely there and the hunger and the, the past experience of, you know, pushing yourself beyond what you think you can was there, which is mm-hmm. around learning the game and the specific skills in a chair. And then yeah. the new body too, because, you know, I, I lost my hand and a lot of my fingers. So catching a ball is a lot different than what it used mm-hmm. to be. So just just fast tracking myself in that. But look, I just dropped everything I was doing to set up. This is what I want to do. And I just spent, yeah, 12 months getting to a point where I could get selected. Awesome. And so you you mentioned previously that you're a high pointer or that was what was missing. Can you just explain what a high pointer is in wheelchair rugby? So what's your classification and and how does that work? Yeah, so wheelchair rugby is very unique. It was created because there were athletes that weren't functional enough to play wheelchair basketball. Mm-hmm. So generally in its origins was players with spinal cord injuries and quite high level. So that's what it was created to give them them a sport. And then mm-hmm. there's a big spectrum of function to play the sport now. So at the lowest end, you've got you know, high-level quadriplegia, limited movement, limited strength in upper body, no core. And then the top end, like myself and Riley, who have full trunk support function but still impairment in all four limbs. Mm-hmm. So we would be a, the highest classification in our sport is 3.5 classification points and the mm-hmm. lowest is 0.5 and they go up in increments of 0.5. So mm-hmm. a bit confusing, but the lowest is 0.5, then you got 1, then 1.5, 2, 2.5, 3, 3.5. And mm-hmm. in our sport, you've got four players on court at once and they can't exceed a total of 8.0 points. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if you and Riley play together at the same time, you have to have two other people who are only the 0.5 to make up that total score of eight, correct? Exactly right. With mm-hmm. one small difference, so not many people know that wheelchair rugby is a mixed sport, so mm-hmm. men and women compete together and female players will get a, a an extra 0.5 to add to the team's total. So if you're a female, mm-hmm. we can run 8.5 points to encourage more females to play. So... Yeah, it, it is quite tactical, our sport. Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks of the hits and, you know, the people rolling out of chairs and that kind of thing. But at the highest level, it's very strategic and very tactical when your teams mm-hmm. make up and how you play. Yeah, and the coaches have to be constantly on the ball to make sure that they're, they're not exceeded that 8.4, 8. 8.5 if they've got a female sort of total of the team in terms of who they sub on and who they sub off at any point in time. That's right. And even as a player, like some athletes won't have great function to catch and pass the ball. Some, you know, have different strengths and weaknesses. So every player that you're looking at passing to, you need to make sure they're able to catch it or not. And what, what classification points are there? And mm-hmm. even in, 
you know, in defense, I need to make sure I'm at least defending someone that's my class or two people that are at least my function points. So then somewhere else on court is not an advantage. So yeah. it is very strategic and tactical at the highest level, but it takes a while to actually understand that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, you're right. Everyone from the outside will probably go, wow, it's just a whole bunch of chairs bashing into each other and eventually <laughs> the ball gets down the court. But but there are, there's a lot of tactics and there's a lot of, you know, because of time clocks and various mm. other things, a lot of strategy within how you actually put that game together. And that's why I love it, I think. Like I've, I've played a lot of sports and I've been pretty good at a lot of sports, but this mm-hmm. is, it's, it was created essentially in Canada in a mix of like ice hockey, gridiron, soccer, basketball, essentially. So it's mm-hmm. got great elements from all these different sports mm-hmm. and it's really unique in that respect. So I think that's why I like it so much. It's so, it's it's quite very, very complex, but once you master it, it's uh, quite, quite rewarding. Yeah. 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 Cool. And so what would your training look like? Uh, you know, I know recently there was, or relatively recently, there was a, a world championships and... Mm-hmm which you won. So congratulations. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> um, so what would kind of now it's, it's you sort of back into a base phase of training. What does that look like for you? Yeah. So we only just got back end of October, I believe, mm-hmm. from our world championships in Denmark, which we won. And that was my third world championships I've been to. I've won two and lost one by one goal mm-hmm. <laughs> in Sydney. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've done quite well um, in major competitions over the last six years. But so we just come back. It was uh, we won. It was great. And then our strength and conditioning coach said, "Yep, you've got. You know, we'll give you a month off, and then we'll get back into some really easy sort of training into next year." Mm-hmm. Which we're at the end of that now. So we're just starting December, and then now we've actually got another competition in January that we're going to in Japan, which just came out oh, of the right. blue the other week. So yep. they're like, "All right, guys, change of pace. We're going to get back into full training next week um, <laughs> to prepare for that." So. The body's going to be sore next week, but yeah, we had a month off, uh, which was nice because we d- you don't get, like, this is the only time of the year you're going to get time off, really, is at the end yeah. of the year. Throughout the whole rest of the year, we'll, we'll be training throughout, so. Yeah. And so what does next week, like, do you know what your program is next week? Yeah, yeah. So it's much the same as what we usually do. We'll have a, a Monday will be a court session. So it's pre-season at the moment. So there'll be a lot of endurance, fitness component. Mm-hmm. Wednesday again will be some some fitness component and then we'll do some skills, drills and game on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And then Friday will be more fitness training on court. Then the Tuesday and the Thursday will be my gym sessions where I do my strength and conditioning with my mm-hmm. exercise physiologist up here. And that'll be, I think, just a bit of a, a strength phase, I think, just to get my body back into some load before we go mm-hmm. away. And on Saturday, then I'll do a, a hand crank maintenance session at home as well so six days a week yeah and roughly sort of two hours a day yeah my gym sessions are around an hour hour and a half plus recovery Mm -hmm. Um, and our court sessions generally two to three hours on court yeah and the team doesn't train together all the time because they're sort of spread around different parts of australia right Correct, yeah. So being a national squad, we've got guys around the country. We, we try to put together like training hubs. So the biggest right now is in Queensland and in Victoria with some guys from New South Wales, some from WA. But yeah, so so giving, given that I'm in Queensland, we actually get a fair amount of 
of people at our mm. session now. We've, we've been building our development players up and giving invitations to others just to come and help us out with numbers and morale and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. yeah, we've got a good little base up here now. Mm, that's great because I think in a lot of other countries the programs are, are decentralized programs and mm. there's you know there's always the challenge of getting enough people together who can create that training environment that's that continues to be challenging in particular in a team sport Liz like it's it's mm. you very much need to learn how to play with your teammates and and run together and I think COVID showed us that. We we were mm. one country that was quite affected in terms of interstate travel and getting together. And, you know, the results in Tokyo sort of speak for themselves. So we know we need to get together as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And that's a challenge that we face as such a big country. Yeah. 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 And so that, that obviously requires a bit of travel, not just, you know, not just for the international competitions, but just for training camps and and that sort of thing how do you how do you manage the travel component are there challenges that you face with that i think so it's just time away right so Mm. from work from family but yeah generally it's around probably four to five times a year we'll try to come together at a training camp um, Mm -hmm. usually in melbourne with the australian team and then we're probably in a normal year around sort of three to five times we'll have an international competitions in the year Mm. And plus, we've also got our domestic league, which is around four four weeks of the year will be away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, plus, obviously, we've got our weekly social competitions as well. So there's actually a lot of time dedicated to the sport <laughs> and training outside of just the normal training hours, yep. which can be difficult for a lot of people to fit in work and family and and keep, you know, keep the roof over their heads and everything. We're yeah. not, you know, we're not professional athletes, we're elite, but... Yeah, so it can be tricky, but, you know, we do it because we love it and it's pretty special. Yeah. And so how many of the team are still are working either at least part-time, if not full-time? There's been a big increase since there was a, a more of a focus on athlete mm-hmm. well-being and the holistic view of an athlete, putting them in the centre. And I would say off the top of my head, probably at least 75 80% of our team, I would say, are working now in some in mm. some capacity, which is which is a lot more than it used to be. I'd say it's probably around 30 40%, probably even five years ago. So, yeah. And are the employers, you know, do they acknowledge the need for flexibility to allow you to travel? Like are the, most of the, the employers pretty good from that side of things? Generally, yeah. I've been very blessed with my employers, <laughs> employers <laughs> in, the, in the past to support me as an athlete, I guess I'm pretty upfront with that, like mm-hmm. in the beginning, but, and there's, there's soft benefits for them, you know, having Paralympic athletes as employees and how that boosts the, the workforce and everything as well. And the skills mm-hmm. that we bring to a team. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's very much a conversation and we're lucky enough. We've got Eloise as part of our, our wellbeing staff support. And she's quite active in, in helping our athletes in the Steelers with, you know, employers and workplaces to to help negotiate to ensure we can maximize all areas of, of our life mm. yeah because I think you know it's interesting that it seems as though having something outside of sport is a really important aspect even though it seems hard to juggle everything it's having something outside of sport just helps to provide some of that balance do you find that you know just from a the athlete well-being side of things how do you feel 
that working helps you overall? I think it's been pretty good for me. It's been very challenging because I've, mm-hmm. I've worked full-time roles for a while and I'm just recently kind of cut back, taking on an executive role recently, which is also challenging. But yeah, I think the phys- you're kind of in the work day and you're getting stressed and you know there's other challenges and you're like, okay, well, I can go to rugby now and and just let all that out on the court, you know, like, like push as hard as you can, get nice and physical, and then you totally forgot about the stresses of the workday. Mm. And then when you're on the court and you're pushing and you're physical and like, oh, I've got to do another, you know, 10 laps and you, you bust and you and you're like, oh, well, at least it's not as, you know, that mental stress that I get at work. So you kind of, I try and play them off like that a little bit. Mm. And then I think also just to create, you know, generally rounded good people i think that helps in building skill sets so so i'm now the captain of our steelers of our australian team and i think a mm. lot of that is because i've been working i've been in the workforce for you know around 10 years now and, and held different roles and you know manage staff and that kind of thing so it just helps they both complement can complement each other but can both be quite stressful it's just getting that balance right yeah and obviously if you love your job as well as you love your your, your sport then that helps helps a long way doesn't it <laughs> Oh, that's a general rule, I think, Liz. You know, anyone, <laughs> it, it makes it easier if you enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. Absolutely. Can I ask you about your nutrition? And seeing as it is a parasports nutrition yeah. podcast, <laughs> we might focus on that for a little bit. Uh, how yeah. do you eat, you know, through the day that kind of, you know, with work and training and how do you eat in order to support all of that? Yeah, it, it's different depending on what phase I'm in too, mm-hmm. Liz. So I've been an, an athlete or a lead athlete for over 12 years now and my nutrition's changed throughout that. But what I tend to do is is focus on what stage of the year I'm in. So if mm-hmm. I'm trying to peak for a competition, I'll be a lot more strict on what I eat. If I'm in a, a break, which I'm just on the back of, mm-hmm. I won't really worry too much about my nutrition and just take that time to enjoy you know, some of the things I wouldn't usually eat, like, you know, fast food, takeaways, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But generally, I eat quite healthy. You you did interview my partner, Bridie, and she mm-hmm. she's done a session. So those, I would invite your listeners to go back and, and listen to hers. But Bridie is celiac, so, mm-hmm. and our daughter is too. So that kind of shapes how I eat at home, which isn't too much different, really. I, going into it, I thought it would be really difficult, but it's really, we just live off, you know, vegetables and, and proteins, essentially, for, at least for our main meals. But yeah, look, a few general rules that I'll follow. I'll always have breakfast. It's okay. quite important. Mm-hmm. We've done a few sessions and we had, it was a uh, slats, you know, Gary Slater who was talking mm-hmm. to us uh, once and around, you know, his method was eat like a king at breakfast, eat like a prince at lunch and eat like a pauper at dinner, Mm -hmm. just in terms of the time it takes the body to absorb the nutrients. And then at night, making sure you're eating to eat again the day and start start with a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. I'll always try and eat, get some protein in or some fuel in after a session. So within that sort of 30 minute window after a session, Mm -hmm. how do I do that? It can be quite challenging. I'll sometimes I'll have to use like a a supplement. So a protein shaker, if I can't find, I have real food on me, depending how busy I am. And then, yeah, if there's, there's small windows, I'll try and supplement with, you know, other small bits of food, yogurts or whatever it is, whatever I can get on hand or up and goes if, if I have to, but yeah, that's kind of, as a general, there's a, there's a few things there. And then, yeah, and vegetables just, basically for, with every main meal. For the non-Australian audience, an up-and-go is a milk-based kind of 
almost like a, a protein shake in a that's already pre-mixed. Pretty much, yeah, just like a a small juice box essentially, but it's uh, mm-hmm. a milk-based protein drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With carbohydrate as well. Yeah, yeah. And so you said that your nutrition has changed a bit over the last twelve years. What are some of the changes that you've you've put into place or that have happened over the course of that? Were you really aware of nutrition being, you know, a, a kid who did a lot of activity or was that something that you had to learn? I was pretty aware of nutrition at an earlier age. I've always been quite blessed with my body makeup and metabolism as a kid. So very like an athletic build always and sort of slim build. My shift was trying to build muscle mass, not lose weight. So my weight's never really been an issue. It's just around building the strength and then ensuring that my energy levels are sufficient to to do my training load. And that was Mm. really difficult at the start because we were doing two sessions a day and coming from pretty pretty low sort of exercise base to begin with at the high Mm. performance level. Um, I guess what I meant is that I've tried different things. So leading into different Paralympic Games, I've, you know, taken a whole 12-month off alcohol altogether. And then, Mm. again, I've done like 12 months without alcohol or any sweets or any biscuits or any junk food at all for 12 months and just full lean diet. And And how did that go? Yeah, that was interesting because like, it took a while to get used to um, mm-hmm. and then I kind of enjoyed the challenge and, you know, stopped missing it. And the hardest thing was socially, like yeah. having a drink socially. And I, but I just wanted to do it to to see what it would do but then also to help inspire my teammates. Like this is what I'm willing to sacrifice to be the best I can be for our team and, mm-hmm. and a couple of other guys picked up on that. But in terms of performance, I, I don't think it really made too much of a difference. Like our sport is, it is like very around endurance and, you know, and speed but – probably 80% of it is decision-making under pressure and mm. sort of and skill. So it's a, it's a mix of both. But then like going to this world championships, I had a different tact and just sort of, you know, pretty moderate, like a nutrition plan, but I was able to allow myself to have, you know, things here or there, like, you know, a couple of drinks or my takeaway meal once a week or something and just sort of didn't really let it dictate my life. And then I, I still performed much close to my best as well mm-hmm. um so they're kind of things i've played with in the past and i think it's different in my sport like a lot if you're an a to b sport you know if you're sprinting or a, or a, a swimmer mm-hmm. where it's just you know 0.1 of a second i think that's, i would say that would make probably a, a bigger difference yeah. but yeah just that's kind of what i meant in terms of trying a few different things as well yeah yeah i think it's good to to experiment with what works best for you and also for your sport because it is a highly you know individualized thing post your impairment or your the amputations how yep. substantial a change in your energy requirements was there do you feel like you had to eat a lot less than you did prior to that or actually that it wasn't as big a change as perhaps what you would have expected yeah so i was very sick like when i got mm. sick because i had cancer and infection and i was in an induced coma and you know that's a feeding through a feeding tube for a while and i kind of thing mm. and i couldn't move my body when i woke up so I went from like a pretty athletic, muscular, sort of 80 kilo, six foot man mm. at 19 to probably 40 kilo of just like skin and bone. Oh, yeah. Who couldn't move my body for about a month and just atrophied yeah. completely. So that was, I didn't even feel like eating. Like I was sick. I had, you know, cancer. I was nauseous. I was, you know, all this sort of stuff, antibiotics. 
infections galore, you know, in hospital staff and MRSA, everything I could get. I was always mm. sick and that kind of thing. So in the beginning, I didn't want to eat and I was forced to eat through, you know, tubes and that kind of thing. So, and then I guess it went out of the hospital system once I started to regain some independence. I guess I, I guess I wouldn't eat as much. Um, I remember not definitely not eating as much. And then once I started to focus on my exercise and build my body back up to being that sort of athletic build that I identified with, definitely I think my yeah my food intake almost got back to what it was. Mm. And and now I'm probably like with my legs on probably around seventy five kilos, mm. so almost close to what I was. But I'm 36 now and I've got two kids under three, so I've had a month off. So I've got a little bit of the, the dad bod going, um, but that's okay because I know it'll turn around very quickly when I go back into full training. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm just interested because I think a lot of people sort of expect that there'd be a, a big change. And, and in fact, you know, with, with a high level of output, you, your energy requirements can actually still be quite substantial. Yes. Yeah. No. Sorry. On the on the back end of that question. So um, yeah. like now, as an APT, as an athlete, yeah, my prosthetist once said that if you wear a prosthetic, which I wear prosthetics mainly throughout the day, and use mm-hmm. my chair as well, you know, someone who's lost one leg and has one prosthetic would generally have to work like fifty percent more energy just to for daily life. Yeah. So. The fact that I've got two, it's almost like mm. I'm working twice as hard as everyone else in terms of wearing just the prosthetics legs in itself. Yep. And then in a wheelchair, so I'm going to say it's probably the same, just different muscle groups. So, yeah, I guess my energy requirements are probably a lot more. So I'm just tired more often. I don't know if, <laughs> if nutrition is <laughs> probably the main thing. I think like good recovery outside yep. of nutrition also helps. Yeah, my food intake it's probably the probably the same, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what about hydration? Do you were you always someone who was a pretty heavy sweater, and are you still the same from that perspective, or was there a shift in terms of how how you regulated your body temperature? There's definitely a shift. I've always been quite sweaty, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, as an as an athlete, as as a kid, but. After my amputations, skin grafts, all that, yeah, my I have a lot less surface area now. And I think the doctor said you sweat mainly from your head, your hands, your palms, and the soles of your feet. Mm. So I've only got one palm left, mm. <laughs> and so my body, I'm always running hot. It's it's I'm always trying to regulate my temperature. Uh-huh. And you know, one of my legs is all skin grafted, which doesn't sweat. So just you know, the other areas need to do more. So I am a heavy sweater now. Mm. I don't know why I live in Queensland, Liz, but um, <laughs> that's where I met. I met my partner, so I deal with that. But air conditioning is my best friend. Yeah, so I lose I lose a lot of fluids when mm. I'm training and in competition and always need to replenish that. So I'll go through, you know, litres of water in a session and then yeah. through the day, like at home, I've got a, I've got a big beer stein, actually, that I use. It's probably two, two litres, I think, and I've mm-hmm. had it since... I don't know, since probably I was a young adult and I just, it's always with me at home and it's always full of water. So I just always carry that around with me and uh, and I'm always drinking from it just to mm. ensure I can get my hydration levels up. And do you also use other things to keep yourself cool? Like you active, do you use things to actively cool yourself as well? I have in the past, like we've done competitions where I use ice towels. Mm. Um, they'll usually bring a big big fan out if they can on the on the bench as well i i think i've done the ice vest once and we've done 
we'll have slushies at training camps mm -hmm. as well to ensure we can, can try and regulate our temperature from the inside. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, predominantly it's just hydration and yeah. trying to replenish fluids. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And what would you say your biggest nutrition challenge is? You kind of mentioned that keeping muscle on was probably the biggest challenge. So are there any other challenges that you've faced? That was kind of in the beginning, I think. Mm -hmm. Like once I've built my muscle mass, that's been okay. I think I think I do quite well with my nutrition. So once I've got just get into a routine, I've been doing this for a long time. Mm. It just kind of sits at a level where I'm comfortable at, um, yep. and then I can, if I need to spend more energy and time on it, I know I've got that gear to go to. You know, just before a competition, if I want to build a bit more muscle or slim down a bit, I can focus a bit more on it. But mm -hmm. it's one of those things I just kind of put on autopilot at them and just have general principles that I'll I'll eat quite well I don't drink soft drinks you know mm -hmm. sugary drinks unless I'm I'm outside the home and it's very rarely that I'll do that if I'm in a training block you know we just general principles of eating breakfast eating our staple meals and try not to snack uh, in between unless unless I'm just finishing a session mm -hmm. and then trying to get my my protein spread across the day as much as possible just these general principles really take even thinking about it out of the equation for the yeah. most part yeah so you know it's it's just being really consistent with i guess framing the way you do things in a particular way I, you know some athletes you talk to sort of say oh i've got to sacrifice this or i've got to sacrifice that whereas i think if you take the proactive approach of this is the way i do things it's not a sacrifice it's just the the way it is would you say that You've seen other athletes struggle a little bit with how they, how consistent they are with that. Oh, definitely, yeah. Especially, especially in para sport with some of the new guys that come in, they might mm -hmm. not have had a sporting background. It just that's what it takes to be at the elite level. There's, yep. there's a lot of factors, skills one, but it's if you want to live a high performance lifestyle, nutrition is just a part of that, and that's mm -hmm. expected on our team. And that can be a bit of a shift for some people because a lot of times teammates in the past haven't been the ones that cooked the meals at home either so mm. i've always cooked our meals here at home so i can control that a bit with other athletes their wives or you know some of the younger ones their moms that will cook and they kind of need to take a bit more control like you know we've had conversations where you're like oh well, what does your supermarket trip look like they're like oh, what do you mean i don't buy groceries like, <laughs> well, that's, that's where it starts yes. you, know, you need to ensure you've got what you need and the other thing that's difficult that when we're working and, and we're on the road or whatever it's around you know, how can I prepare for the day? Like, that's one of the biggest things. If you get caught out and it's then you got to try and find somewhere that has a healthy option or a, a good nutritional option, which can be tough depending mm. where you are. So it's just a, being mindful, I think, the night before or morning before you leave for the work day that you've packed your lunch. But more recently, I've been buying like packaged meals too. So, mm -hmm. so frozen meals of, you know, with meat and veg and different bits and pieces that I can just have in there as app in the microwave at lunchtime with mm -hmm. a, some fruit or whatever and, that's lunch done. I don't have to think about it. It's just being smarter, I think, um, yeah. and, and planning is is pretty cool. Yeah, and then I do, I do have one vice, Liz. That, that's a barbecue sauce, if you oh, ask anyone right. that, that knows me. So ever since I was a kid. So I'll put that on everything. That's my little sort of uh, <laughs> treat, I suppose, which helps make everything taste better to me. So it's probably a bit there. But, yeah, so that is my one vice. Is yeah. there always a bottle in your suitcase when you travel overseas? Yeah, the guys sort of stitch me up about it. But, um, yeah, there's always a barbecue sauce and a thing of Vegemite everywhere we go. So the team knows that I'm, I've got them covered on, on, that, on that front wherever we go in the world. Yeah. 
Oh, but it's important. Like, I mean, sometimes you can't control, well, certainly when you're traveling overseas, you can't control the, the flavor of the food that gets delivered to you. But if you can create something that's going to mean that it tastes fine to you and it's edible, then, you know, that's what you've got to do. <laughs> It helps. And, mate, the bottle's always empty at the end of the trip, so everyone, <laughs> everyone digs in. They yeah. secretly love it. I'll just stitch me up about uh, it. So, yeah. Of course. So, Chris, do you have any recommendations for, say, young potential athletes, parasport athletes, and in terms of, you know, coming into parasport or finding a sport, any recommendations that you have for them? Yeah, I would say – the easiest thing to do is to cut out the sugary drinks, mm-hmm. like soft drinks and, and that kind of thing, I think. Like just learn to love water. Yeah, I think that's probably the easiest way to reduce, you know, the energy you probably don't need or that the energy you, you can supplement better. Mm-hmm. And probably my other one is frozen vegetables. Mm. Like, you know, you might think making a meal is going to take forever, cutting up everything, preparing it. Like I just get those little packets of the frozen veg. I chuck them in the microwave for three minutes, mm. cook a bit of protein, and I'm away. Like, yeah. And maybe a bit of a, a, a carbohydrate sachet, like a rice or some mashed potato or something if I need it. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I just get my carbs from vegetables and that's it. I'm done. Like it takes 10 minutes. So, yeah, eating eating well doesn't need to take long. doesn't mm. need to be super gourmet. And I add my little my squirt of barbecue sauce on there, you know, my 10, <laughs> five mil or whatever it is. And uh, that's my little way to, to keep it tasty and uh, and I'm away. So I would say, yeah, just cook, learn to cook for yourself, mm-hmm. learn to find out what you enjoy uh, with a bit of variety, you know, and yeah, it doesn't have to be complicated. Yep. Yeah. I love it. Anything like you would have interacted a lot with a number of different practitioners, any, any, you know, sports dietitians. I know you've had Chaborn working with you for, ever since you've been on the team what mm. and sports psychology and sports medicine anything that you would recommend to them when it comes to working with para sport athletes just in in general yeah i mean it, it's very individualized i guess my one piece of advice so like they should with most most clients put them at the center and really ask them the questions around you know their disability their energy requirements you know what they currently do why they do it because there's quite a vast array of different disabilities different needs mm-hmm. even in the nutrition space with someone with a disability yeah. um and i don't think any two people are, are very much the same like it's all different like even when in our squad we'll have recovery shakes and, and protein supplements after our sessions at national camps and you know some some guys have the bars some guys have the shakes some guys have something completely different and mm-hmm. and that's okay like you don't have to have one standardized approach mm-hmm. i don't think and people will more likely take on board something that's tailored and individual to them and they've had a bit of a involvement in the decision making process yeah. absolutely fantastic well chris it's been wonderful hearing about your your story and about how you approach things. You've obviously taken a very professional approach to that and and have reaped the rewards. I mean, fast-tracked onto the team and currently team captain and, and a very successful team over an extended period of time. We can't let you go without finding out, and we already know that barbecue sauce is Probably in in amongst there, but what your favourite food is? Oh, that's a great question. I like a lot of foods. It's my favourite food. 
probably probably like a lamb, I reckon. Oh. A lamb rump. Oh. It used to be yeah, like a lamb rump on polenta mash with green beans. Used to be my favourite. It's mm-hmm. probably still easy. Just haven't had it for a while. Um, <laughs> and is bit that, of barbecue sauce. Yep. <laughs> and do you right make away. that yourself, yep. or is that something that used to be a family meal? I used to actually be a cook, Liz. Like back oh. before I got sick, so I used to work at Bridges Hotel in Canberra. Um, <laughs> so I was around around food all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, that was one of the meals. Uh, we used to do a lot of functions, a lot of weddings and stuff. Used to do that and. Uh, I'd, I'd, yeah, sneak out the back and have three plates um, <laughs> myself. And it just used to be the goer. So that's just one thing I remember. I do like a lot of foods. But, yeah, that was that was my favourite and probably still is. Yeah, I do like a good lamb, even if it's a, a roast lamb and or a lamb cutlet. So, yeah. Yes. Uh, I, it's hard to go past a good lamb dish for sure. Mm, definitely. Nice work. Well, I just found out something I didn't know about you beforehand, and that's that you used to be a chef. But I really love the fact that, a chef has said as a recommendation for athletes that make it really simple and, you know, don't be afraid to use things like frozen veg or a meal that already is frozen with the veg with it because if you don't already know the veggies are frozen at their peak nutrition and the yeah. freezing process actually preserves that really effectively. And so that's yeah, definitely something that I would endorse as well. Yeah, I think time's changed from mm-hmm. probably spent a lot more time in the kitchen as a single young person, now as a, a father of two, a working father of two that also trains full-time. Mm. Time is of the essence, so yep. <laughs> work yep. smarter, not harder. Ah, yep. I love it. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you, Chris, so much. It's been fantastic talking to you and certainly wish you all the best with the upcoming trip to Japan and looking forward to seeing more from the Steelers and, and from you in all walks of life. Thanks, Liz. Bring on Paris. Let's go again. Yeah. (laughs) Chris has a great message around not making things too complicated. Learn about what your body needs for your sport and keep it as simple as you can. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to leave a message or give us any recommendations on people you'd like to hear from, please leave that on the website. And I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Carolyn Murray, who is the National Paratriathlon Coach for Team Canada.